When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time, women don't always feel welcome in the scientific community, some perhaps less than others. We all love science, and this construction of race is really just false. If we could just focus on the fact that we all love science, we're all geeking out about the amazing things that atoms do, it would be fantastic. But this scientist found her niche, and she says other women can too. Go and find environments where you feel valued. There's no honor in fighting fights where you feel like you're always going to be losing. There are plenty of other more conducive places to getting work done. Coming up on The Broad Experience. Before I introduce you to my guest, I want you to hear a story. Before the pandemic, she'd travel a lot for work. And one day, she was in an airport bathroom on the East Coast, those bathrooms where the faucets come on automatically. She went to wash her hands. And the faucet didn't work. I said, okay, no problem. So I went to the one nearby. That didn't work. I went to the one on the other side. That didn't work. And then this woman came in who was, uh, I'm African-American, this woman who came in who was, uh, had a lighter complexion, she put her hand underneath the faucet and it worked immediately. I said, aha. You know, I'm a scientist. So I said, let me go back over to this faucet because it does work. And what I did is I just outstretched my hand so that the lighter part of my hand, my palm, was in front of the photosensor. Boom, there goes the water. So when this water faucet was made, there was an assumption made in its process. It was designed, it was tested on people with lighter skin. This is Anissa Ramirez. I'm a scientist, a science writer. And I'm the author of the book, The Alchemy of Us. When Anissa was studying science and engineering at top universities like Brown and Stanford, there weren't many people like her. We know the same goes for many areas of science and technology today. So perhaps it's not surprising that whoever designed those faucets thought about themselves in the design and testing phases. I had always assumed that those faucets were operated by motion sensors. Anissa says some are but others work with a light sensor. There's a light coming out and it's going to hit a surface and then it's going to bounce back to a sensor. And when it gets enough light, it says, oh, somebody's there. Let me turn that on. So if someone has light skin, that light will bounce off their skin and go to that detector. But darker skin, brown skin, absorbs more light. So that detector doesn't register light being bounced back so it doesn't think anybody's in front of it so it doesn't turn on. These days, Anissa explains how things work for a living. She calls herself a science communicator, even a science evangelist. She wants more people of all backgrounds to enjoy science and pursue it as a career. When she was an undergraduate, she thought she might become an electrical engineer like her dad. But those courses didn't really speak to her. 
she had to do this prerequisite course called Materials Science. She'd never heard of it, assumed it would be really boring. But that professor said something that blew her away. Uh, What he said was, everything around us has to do with the interaction of atoms. And these little things that you cannot see, that are hard to see with microscopes, are in charge of everything in our world. And if you can understand how they do what they do, you can get them to do new things and make new materials. And this was the lens that I've now adopted to understand the world. She went on to get a doctorate at Stanford and became a material scientist. Her first job was at the famous Bell Labs in New Jersey, and then she taught at Yale. Now she's out on her own. We'll talk more about that decision to change direction and her new book in a bit. But first, I wanted her to go back in time. I've loved science since I was very, very young. And so I was a geek for most of my life. I was one of those little girls who was very curious, always asking lots of questions, always taking things apart, not always putting things back together the same way. She had a loving family who always supported her interests. I always read the beginning pages of a book and I notice that you dedicate your book to your mother and your grandmother. Tell me about them. Well, my grandmother was my superhero. Um, Everybody deserves a superhero, and my grandmother was definitely mine. She was amazing. And my mom is is also there because my mom has always been my number one fan. You know, when I was writing this book, which took years to do, there were many times where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't think I'm ever going to finish. And she would just cheer me on and, you know, do what mothers do to just, you know, she believed in the book way, way more and way more often than I did. Both women sacrificed a lot before Anissa was even born. Anissa's grandmother immigrated from the Caribbean to the UK in the years after the Second World War. Then she moved from there to the US, with Anissa's mother in tow. Throughout her grandmother's life, she supported family members back home in Antigua. She sent food home. She sponsored people for green cards. She worked a lot as a nurse's aide and a cleaner of fancy houses, among other things. She had a lot of responsibilities. She was kind of on the hard side. She was a little gruff, but she always warmed up when when I interacted with her. She, I, was, I was very fortunate. And so sometimes I would be working on science projects. And there was one science, pro- science project where I had to identify leaves and I needed to go to Central Park. And she took me. She's very busy, but she was giving me the message that education is very, very important. Anissa was raised in New Jersey, and she went to Catholic schools. She became more and more obsessed with science, and she credits her grandmother with being part of the reason she's so good at communicating what she knows, making it accessible in her talks and lectures. I grew up in a working-class neighborhood uh, and wanted to explain science to people around me, particularly my grandmother, and how do you do this in a way that it resonates? Like, I, I wanted to make sure that my grandmother understood what I was learning in school because I'm so excited. How do I explain this to her, even if it's a topic that she may not be familiar with? And so what I would do is I would compare things to things that were around her, or I would make stories up to kind of explain the things and she would get it. Oh, okay. I get it. And, and I think that muscle, which was exercised very early, you know, when I'm seven, eight, nine years old, and also that perspective that science is for everyone is something that was nurtured at a very, very early age. So later on, when I was a professor, I knew that I loved teaching. And, you know, my teaching scores were always off the chart because I took the approach that I'm here to get you where I think you should be. So I'm going to meet you where you are 
and explain it as a story, demonstration, what have you. And I think the reason why I make science approachable is because of the lessons I learned very, very young when I was trying to explain science to my grandmother. Throughout her school years, Anissa excelled. Her family saw it, her teachers saw it. They recognized the budding scientist and they were thrilled when she headed off to Brown University in Rhode Island. She was on her way. And when I get to Brown, the brakes are pumped. The subject she'd always loved, it was suddenly being taught in this very formal way. Instead of being about the wonder of discovery, it was all about weeding people out. In fact, I remember one class where a professor said this, and he almost said this with pride, uh, look to your left, look to your right, one of you won't be here next semester. And he was right. And then the next semester, another professor said, look to your left, look to your right, one of you won't be here next semester. And he was right. Like they would cut us in half every semester for at least four semesters. And this just didn't seem, this didn't seem right to me. Everyone here loves science. This is a rare breed. And you're taking the posture that we need to cut the numbers in half every time we have this huge array of talent. She says she almost fell through the cracks. She had been the best at her high school, but now she was surrounded by the best from everywhere. A lot of people from private schools, international students. She was floundering, and she hated the way her beloved subject was being taught. It shouldn't be that way. We need people who know science. They don't necessarily need to become a scientist, but we need a world where people know about science and how to make decisions for themselves. This is the reason why we're in this problem that we are in today in terms of this anti-science world, because we've set up this kind of dynamic. So I was very heartbroken in the process of learning science in my undergraduate years, but fortunately I found a way to, um, to turn that around. Science isn't known as an area that's terribly friendly to women and perhaps particularly to women of colour. So I, I'm curious, what has what your experience been, both in the corporate world and in academia? Has that been borne out to you? Have you had a lot of eye-rolling experiences? Well, I mean, it, it's definitely difficult. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I was, I, you know, I, I can't say I was the first because I always hear rumors that there was someone else before you, but I was the, I was the first African-American woman to get a PhD in material science at Stanford. I think there was someone who got a master's before I was there. And so when you're this unusual body, they don't really have high expectations for you. Um, I, and I've witnessed it not only in myself, but with my colleagues, they would treat us a certain way where, you know, you don't really belong here. It was said or, or you just got that impression. And so, you know, that's something that I had to certainly deal with. And, and, and the thing that's so sad about it is that we all love science. And this construction of race is really just false. If we could just focus on the fact that we all love science, we're all geeking out about the amazing things that atoms do, it would be fantastic. But, you know, science is done in the context of, of us being humans. And so there's this other layer that's always, always kind of in the background, murking things up a little bit. During her academic career, she had mentors who got her through and encouraged her to stay the course. A German-born professor at Brown who coached her in chemistry. Mrs. Morse, who I'm writing an essay about her too, uh, had a thick German accent. She was very stern, but when she smiled, she lit up. And she saved me because if I failed chemistry at 21, I never would have become an engineer and become a scientist. An African-American professor at Stanford 
Then, as a newly minted PhD, she landed a job at Bell Labs. When I got to Bell Labs, it was sort of like a moment of relief, like, thank goodness. Uh, Because my boss's boss's boss, Jim Mitchell, was an African-American man. And also, there were so many more women and so many more black scientists, African-American scientists, and scientists of all hues there, that I didn't have to do the proof of principle like I should be here because there were so many here and they were all excellent. I mean, people who are members of the National Academies and they were presidents of their societies. I was actually very, very um, new and unaccomplished compared to them. And so it was great, <laughs> you know, I, to be off people's radar, radars. Do I belong here? I'm like, of course I belong here. Here's my tribe. So, so that was quite wonderful. Uh, when I went to academia, I went back into a, an environment which I called as, uh, which was male pale and went to Yale. So uh, all that was lost. <laughs> but at least I remembered my Bell Labs, um, my Bell Labs memories kept me going while I was there. Anissa taught mechanical engineering at Yale. As she said, the environment there was not as comfortable. Of her incoming cohort of younger professors, she was the only black professor. And then, when she and her colleagues came up for tenure years later, none of them got it. That would have been the opportunity for a permanent professorship, a job for life. And when she found out, she thought, OK, this is a time to decide what to do next. Stay in academia? or try something new. While she was at Yale, her absolute favourite part of her time there was teaching something called Science Saturdays. It was a programme for kids. She'd teach on Saturdays two months out of the year. I felt so alive during those two months. And then after the preparations and after the lectures were over, my energy would go back to some baseline. And I did Science Saturdays for about seven years. And I would just notice that October and April, I was on fire, and then afterwards, I wasn't. She thought about it, and she realised this is what she loved, communicating with young people, making them as curious and excited about science as she'd been as a kid. Trying something new was absolutely scary, but I said, let's try something new. If it doesn't work out, we'll get a job. And I haven't had to make that decision, so it's been good. In a minute, we're going to hear a few stories from Anissa's book, The Alchemy of Us, how humans and matter transformed one another, beginning with two areas I think a lot of us have a conflicted relationship with, time and sleep. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the best parts of Anissa's book for me was how she helped me understand the way human beings used to relate to time. Because let's face it, today, most women have a pretty stressful relationship with time. But as Anissa says, clocks are a relatively recent invention. We used to tell time by the position of the sun. And so we were more connected to nature. 
And also we were more connected to our own body's clock. Like when I, when my stomach growled, oh, I knew it was time to go to lunch. As opposed to now, you know, when it's noon or 1130, you know, that's when we just go to lunch, even if we're hungry or not. So time dictates our lives a little bit more than it did with our ancestors. In fact, so much so that it actually changed the way we sleep. Uh, our ancestors before the Industrial Revolution used to sleep differently. They would sleep in two intervals. Uh, they would go to bed at nine, sleep for about three and a half hours, wake up on purpose for about an hour or so, do things around the house, like clean, read, do a puzzle, and then go to bed for another three and a half hours. She says you can find mentions of this in literature, including Dickens and the Brontes, this so-called first sleep. But now we have a more consolidated version of sleep. And the reason why is that it was changed by two inventions, the clock and the light bulb. The light bulb allowed us to go to bed later. And so one of those segments of sleep was shortened. And then the clock forced us to wake up earlier because we had to go to work or we had to prepare people to go to school, things like that. So those two segments became consolidated. And that's what our sleep looks like today. That's so interesting. And I, I think another thing for my audience is a lot of women just do not feel they get enough sleep because time is closing in on them at both ends kind of thing. Well, absolutely. We have a very strange rela relationship with sleep because we think of sleep as a form of weakness. And, uh, you know, if you take a nap, it's like, well, what's wrong with that person? Well, I'm tired. <laughs> That's what's wrong with me. And I should go to sleep. So we don't do that. What we'll do is we'll caffeinate or we'll do things. We'll go to the gym to kind of bolster ourselves. But uh, a lot of other countries, uh, if they're tired, they go to sleep. The other thing that I talk about in The Alchemy of Us is that, you know, a lot of us are kind of suffering from different kinds of sleep uh, ailments. Uh, the insomnia is off the charts and there's people who are willing to sell you all kinds of pillows and mattresses and things like that. It ends up that the way that we sleep may not be ideal for our health. As I mentioned um, moments ago, uh, we used to sleep in two segments and people would wake up on purpose in the middle of the night. You know, some forms of insomnia might be hearkening back to this old form of segmented sleep. So, um, you know, when our ancestors woke up in the middle of the night, they didn't think they had a problem. This was just the natural way to sleep. So we need a better relationship to sleep. We need to have more of it. We need to see it not as a form of weakness if we actually do it. And uh, if we wake up in, a, in the middle of the night, well, maybe this is just one part of our natural rhythm of sleeping. And you wrote about this on this same topic of time. You wrote about this female entrepreneur from the 19th century who I'd never heard of called Ruth Belleville, right? Right, right. She's the first person that you meet when you open up the book, uh, The Alchemy of Us. And Ruth Belleville had this unusual position. Uh, she, was, uh, she worked in the 19th century and she sold time. Uh, she would wake up early uh, in her home in Maidenhead, which is about 30 miles outside of London, make her way over to London, and then over to Greenwich, walk up a very, very steep hill to the Royal Observatory where the precise time was. And she, would, she would be carrying with her a watch, which she had nicknamed Arnold. She would give Arnold the watch to the attendant. The attendant would look at her watch and compare it to their scientific clock, give her a, a certificate noting the difference. And then she would make her way back to London and she would give the precise time to people who needed to know it. Lots of people had clocks and the clocks were great, but sometimes they slipped and they didn't know the exact time. Is it 8.15? Is it really 8.15? So she would come and once a week and say, okay, here's the precise time and people would reset their clocks so that they could have, uh, you know, lawyers needed to know it, banks needed to know it, train stations needed to know the precise time. And so that was her business. Ruth Belleville isn't the only woman I'd never heard of who I read about in Anissa's book. 
Another one is Caroline Hunter. Caroline Hunter is an American hero that most people don't know about. Caroline Hunter is an African-American woman who started a position as a chemist at Polaroid in the 1970s. And Polaroid was the much beloved company like Apple when, when Steve Jobs was around. Everyone wanted to work there. They were so excited to be there. And Polaroid made this fantastic technology that everyone wanted for Christmas, which was a camera that generated an image of a, a, a picture right away, an instant camera. And, and Caroline worked on this technology. One day she's going to lunch with her friend Ken Williams, who's in the art department, and they see on the bulletin board in his office a mock-up of an identification card, and it says, uh, Department of the Mines, Republic of South Africa. They thought, what does Polaroid have to do with South Africa? American companies weren't supposed to be doing business with South Africa because of its apartheid system, which kept the races apart and kept black South Africans down. And so they investigated and they found out that all black South Africans had to carry with them a passbook. The passbook controlled and monitored where they could go because it told officials where they lived and where they could not visit. At the heart of the passbook was a picture generated by Polaroid. Caroline and Ken didn't think this was right. And so they went to their management to talk about this and their management, their response was fairly lukewarm. And so Caroline and Ken, this is the 70s, so they uh, graduated into activists and they started the Polaroid Revolutionaries Workers Movement to get Polaroid to stop selling its camera film and camera system to South Africa to stop buttressing this oppressive uh, regime. It took seven years. Polaroid eventually did stop selling to South Africa, but Caroline and Ken were fired early on. And staying on the topic of photography, Anissa says in the 1960s, black families were getting fed up with the quality of their kids' school photographs. One of the most precious memories you have of, as a child is the school photo. And uh, African-American mothers were looking at the photo of their children and they're saying, you know, something's not right. Here, here we have uh, both black and white kids and black kids are not turning out well in the film. It ends up that the film had a bias. It was actually better designed for lighter colored skin. And it wasn't until schools were integrated, which is in the 1950s, where this became noticeable. Because before, when white kids were all together, the film looked fine for them. And when black kids were all together, the film looked fine for them because they would do things with lighting and things like that. But when the kids were together, both black and white, white kids turned out well and black kids did not. Kodak was the main producer of color film, and it finally did change the formulation of its film, but not because of black parents. It also got complaints from two business groups, chocolate makers and furniture makers. Each of those manufacturers of brown things felt their products weren't coming out well in their print ads. The delectable nature of a chocolate bar or the sheen of a wooden table just weren't coming across in photos. So Kodak came up with a new formulation in the late 70s. And this story kind of brings us back to the beginning and that story of the faucet in the airport bathroom that didn't turn on for darker skin. Anissa tells these stories because she lives this stuff herself, but also because she's a scientist who's passionate about helping the rest of us understand how things work. And she wants to take science out of the academy and get kids and young adults excited about it. So some of them can turn science into their work. 
so there'll be more Anisas in the future. Thank you so much for doing this. Is there anything else you'd like to say to, say there are some young budding female scientists listening to this, or or not even budding, they may be established in their careers, but is there anything you'd like to convey before we go? Well, I would say that there are so many voices that are going to say that your voice is not important. And that voice may even sound like the one in your head, but your voice is precious and you should protect it and you should do everything in your power to make sure that it gets heard and go and find environments where you feel it valued. There's no honor in fighting fights where you feel like you're always going to be losing. There are plenty of other more conducive places to getting work done. And the last thing I would say is that make sure that you're doing your work, whatever you think that you're especially tailored to do, that you think you were designed to do. There are so many things that will tell you that you should be doing this, you should be doing that, but you should pause and listen to that inner small voice and figure out what it is that you were designed to do that you surpass everyone else. Everyone gets one. So just be brave enough to find it. And I can assure you that when you do, you're going to be so happy when you pursue it. Anissa Ramirez is the author of the book, The Alchemy of Us. That's the broad experience for this time. You'll find links to some of Anissa's work under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. You can find me in all the usual places, on the website, on Twitter, or on the Facebook page. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 